0: We thank you for gathering us in this place today. We thank you for making yourself known to us through the pages of your scripture. We thank you for awakening our hearts to realize the beauty and the value of yourself betrayed in your holy, portrayed in your holy word. This is a work of the sovereign and a God himself, God, the third person in the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was sent For the payment for our sins and entered into this world, took on flesh in the incarnation, became a man, dwelt among us, proclaimed his word, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, was crucified for our sins, did not stay in the grave, declared victory over death in his resurrection on the third day, was resurrected not only to walk this earth again, but to be ascended before the right hand of the Father. And we proclaim that our Lord Jesus Christ now rules and reigns in glory. So as we turn to his word this day, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the extent of his rule. I pray that the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, would encourage and equip us for the day of trouble. As we go back to the refuge that we see the psalmist declaring in your word in Psalm 94, I pray that the same anchor for his soul that gave him hope in days of persecution would grant your church sufficient ground to stand as we ourselves may face similar circumstances. We also pray through the proclamation of your gospel that the lost would be drawn unto repentance and faith in Christ. Now we might look to him as our example so that any suffering we might be called to endure would be nothing compared to the suffering that we realize he endured for us. Even the suffering of the wrath of God deserving of our sin Thank you, Father, for these truths. I pray that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word, that your church would be equipped as your spirit opens our eyes to see the glories therein contained. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege we have. What a great blessing it is to gather with the saints and to behold the Lord's word today. Would you turn with me to Psalm 94 this morning as we open up the scriptures together? Second Sunday of the month is our Psalm a Month series. This leads us to Psalm 94 today. It'll be my attempt to cover the entire psalm today, which means we'll have to cover some material a little more quickly than usual, so bear with me. My outline is fairly basic, though, just four major points this morning, it falls under this title, Days of Trouble. This uh, title comes from verse 11, no, 13 in Psalm 94, where the psalmist Looks for rest from days of trouble. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble. It's quite clear from the context of Psalm 94 that the author finds himself indeed in days of trouble. Do we find ourselves in days of trouble today? Have you ever felt troubled by the days, by the context, by the culture, by the environment? Or the world in which you live? If so, Psalm 94 should be very valuable information for us. <clears throat> the aim of this morning's message is to reassure the saints, to reassure, to reassure us, the church, and to glorify God, proclaiming his timely judgments. To reassure the saints and to glorify God, proclaiming his timely judgments. So with that introduction, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word today? With your Bible open to Psalm 94, and let us consider God's holy word. Listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today, Psalm 94, 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Verse 20. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 94 finds its place in a list of eight. It's the second in a set of eight songs which magnify and proclaim the universal lordship of Yahweh. We've noted there are even more songs. I can't remember how many back to back. And the first a passage Among the first phrases, the first verse, include that high and set-apart name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your translation, signifying the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Psalm 94 is the second of eight psalms which magnify and proclaim the universal lordship of Yahweh. Israel's king may fail her. The kings of the earth are pagan and wicked, yet God is the true king. In him we invest our hope his realm knows no end. His rule will not fail. His kingdom is established and certain. It is universal. It is absolute. It is ultimate. It is secure. In him, we have an eternal hope. This is the message that this group of Psalms proclaim. Why? Because the authors find themselves in days of trouble. Perhaps a crumbling kingdom is the context. Perhaps one of the wicked kings that did not Serve the Lord, did not follow his law, did not live within the bounds and oh, walk with the Lord within the bounds of covenant. And then the kingdom is divided. We have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and their kings increasingly wicked as it would seem. Where is hope to be found in days of trouble? We turn to Yahweh, the king of kings. His majesty is set forth in these songs of exaltation, reminding the citizens of mere human or mere earthly kingdoms that their hope is secure and the ultimate and powerful judge of the earth. Yahweh is the judge of all the earth. He is the judge of all other kings. We find this in the first phrases of our song today. His day of reckoning may appear slow to arrive, especially during days of trouble or times of affliction for the righteous, but his coming is nevertheless certain and decisive. The coming of the Lord always uh, has with it judgment implications. A day of reckoning. A day where wicked, the wicked must answer for their transgression of God's law. A day where the balances of justice are righted. A day where the perfect righteousness and holiness of God deals with any infraction of his word and law. Though these days appear slow in arriving to us, whether it is a provisional coming of the Lord in history... Or the coming of the Lord on the final day, nevertheless, they are certain and decisive. No evil will escape his justice. Psalm 94 provides a source of reassuring hope for the truly oppressed, reminding them to pledge their allegiance and direct their fear to the highest king. This echoes Psalm 82, which was a theme that we've explored before in the Psalter. Psalm 82, I preached again recently under the title, Preaching to Princes. And I asked the question, what is the worship value of a song that proclaims righteousness to kings, rulers of the earth, and princes? And I suggested one answer could be this, that when we hear a song that proclaims authority over the kings of the earth, it reminds us to direct our primary allegiance and our primary fears heavenward and not earthward. It is easy for us to reserve our primary allegiance and our fears to the kings of the earth. Kings that we support, presidents, rulers, administrations, legislatures, and so forth, or ones that we fear. We worry they will take away our rights and, and uh, the world, or, and our privileges as we know it, and so on and so forth. Psalm 82, Psalm 94, they redirect our allegiances and our fears to the king of kings. The worship value of a song like this reminds believers in every age, this side of the eschaton, if you will, that our strongest fears and highest allegiances belong with the king of kings and should not be directed to any earthly administration. No matter if we are enjoying a period of relative peace or if we find ourselves suffering days of trouble like the psalmist, we are reminded by these passages that our messianic hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. This is, after this introduction, let me give you a heading here. In the presence of his enemies, the psalmist declares four things. Number one, a vengeance invocation. What is an invocation? Well, it's a summoning of authority or it's an opening prayer. Both apply in this case. The author opens, he invokes the vengeance of the Lord in introducing this song. Secondly, he declares a case against the wicked. There's many, uh, there's many points where the wicked king has fallen, the wicked rulers of his day have transgressed God's law, and he catalogues them. Thirdly, in the presence of his enemies, the psalmist declares a confrontation of the wicked. He confronts them in light of the God to whom they must one day bow or be broken. And before, bow before or be broken. Uh, and then number four. In the presence of his enemies, the psalmist declares the consolation of the righteous. A vengeance invocation, a case against the wicked, a confrontation of the wicked, and finally the consolation of the righteous. Verses 1 and 2, consider them under this idea of vengeance invocation. Our author writes and sings, verse 1, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Three things under a vengeance invocation. We find God's glory and God's vengeance in the same breath. When you think of the glory of God, do you consider his wrath? Or do you only consider the things that we maybe prefer to think about, like his love and his mercy, which absolutely speak to his glory? But does not the gospel tell us that unless the wrath and vengeance, the righteous indignation of a holy God against sin is satisfied in Calvary, there is no mercy and there is no love to be extended? How can God be holy and forgive a sinner? He must satisfy his vengeance by a substitute sacrifice. This is the gospel. Therefore, a holy God is a God who reserves the right and the timing And the absolute authority and the ability to judge his enemies. And so to this God, our author appeals, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. In that phrase, shine forth, the author of Psalm 94 uh, affirms that the glory of God, attributes that are part and parcel of his character, including his vengeance, his right to pay retribution against his enemies, display his glory. And he's asking that God would reveal himself and his right to avenge, that he would shine forth in the defeat of the psalmist and the Lord's enemies. Let me ask you a question I've asked before. Do you and the Lord have the same enemies? If you do, then God is your refuge and you are truly safe and you, can, and you truly have a king and an ally in the Lord that ultimately will preserve you victoriously. However, if your enemies are different than the Lord's, there's a real problem. You are on the wrong side of history, to borrow a phrase that is perverted in our culture these days. The right side of history is the side of history that is authored by our Lord, affirms him in all his glorious attributes, and declares and proclaims and magnifies the glory of his great name in all that he truly is. Modern man seeks to impose upon God the same limitations he has imposed upon us. You'll recall from Romans 12, 19 that the scriptures say in another place, do not avenge your enemies, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, paraphrasing. So sometimes we want to impose this prohibition against this uh, avenging ourselves on the Lord. I remember listening to a sermon that was blasphemous indeed, and the, it occurred to me that the premise of this so-called sermon was that The central attribute of the Lord is his love. And everything else must be changed, disregarded, minimized, or twisted to fit into his idea of a loving God. That is loving without qualification. Let me ask you a question. Is a husband, does a husband love every woman the same way he loves his wife? No. A loving husband is not indiscriminate with his love. He is not promiscuous with his love. A loving husband is bounded, his love is bounded by covenant promises. This is the same with the Lord. His love is not promiscuous. His love is bounded by covenant. And if you are outside of that covenant, you are an object of something else, in this case, as his enemy of his vengeance and his wrath. So as we see this, we recognize that modern man seeks to Uh, understand God with the central attribute of love, indiscriminate, promiscuous love. God loves everyone, all times, all the same, no matter where they stand in covenant relationship with him. Saints, let me offer a corrective. The central attribute of God, if I could suggest one, would be holiness. God is holy, and his holiness must be preserved at all costs. God is never loving at the expense of his holiness. God is never vengeful at the expense of his holiness. In other words, all of God's attributes and characteristics serve his holiness, if you will, just as a corrective and a perspective to help us understand the truth and the force behind Psalm 94. Many times correction is in order if we just imbibe the presumptions of our day, who people think God is. A vengeance invocation. Glory and vengeance go hand in hand. Secondly, we find that like Yahweh is the judge of all the earth. Verse two, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. There is no neutral realm. There is no area, there is no separation between the judge of the earth and this realm of the state or this kingdom over here or this uh, nation over there. The, rights of, the right of God to judge extends over all the earth, over all history, over all time. There is no neutral realm. There is no confusion or ambiguity to be found in this text. It is to say, as Psalm 2 also echoes and affirms, that every king must serve uh, in fear of the Lord if he is to rightly rule, because he serves at the pleasure of the judge of all the earth, the pleasure of the king of kings, and at his mercy, and to him he must answer. And when the vengeance invocation comes in God's timely way, Woe to those who act as if they are the highest judge. Woe to the president, to the administration, to the senator, to the legislator, to the house of reps, representative, and so on and so forth. Woe to the one who rules without regard to the judge of all the earth, who establishes his righteous rule for all time and establishes his law by which all men will be judged, who establishes his prerogative over every king and kingdom that ever was and ever will be. His glory is seen in his vengeance. He is the judge of all the earth. And this leads our author to lament. He says in verse three, Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? What is a lament? It's a heart cry of anguish because you live in, title of our message, days of trouble. People cry, they worry, they're in anguish about many things. But how many of us lament the conditions of wickedness that surround us and cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, before your day of of vengeance arrives to set things aright? It's almost a fearful prayer. It should be prayed with sobriety. Nevertheless, this is a biblical source of anguish. O Lord, how much longer will you suffer this blasphemy against your holy name? We truly live in a day and an hour and among a people and a worldview that deserves judgment. Would you show forth your righteousness in bringing a day of reckoning? We can pray and we ought to in the same breath. And would you extend your righteousness by proclaiming your crown rights and your kingdom through the proclamation of your gospel so that those who are sinners and living outside of your righteous rule would repent of their transgression and place faith in you so that their enemies would be your enemies as well. This is the heart behind a vengeance invocation. It it, uh, uh, reminds us of the aspects of God's character that serve his glory. Proclaims that he is judge of all the earth, and it causes his people to cry out in anguish that wrongs would be set aright and that the Lord would return. I hear an objection in the back of my mind. Someone would say, This is an Old Testament text. Surely things have changed in the new. I don't recognize these concepts you're talking about with the Jesus meek and mild to read of in the New Testament. Don't be so quick. In Revelation, we read words this morning during our worship text that speak to this idea. They were worshipful praises that are offered by those who populate the realms of glory, a great number, a multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue that worship the Lamb. However, that worship is preceded by a lament, by an anguish, anguished cry in Revelation 6.10. Notice how it echoes Psalm 94. They cried out with a, long, a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, notice that phrase, how long, before you will judge, judge of all the earth to whom they make their appeal, and avenge our blood, God of vengeance, on those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were were to be killed as they themselves had been what happens next? Verse 15, skipping ahead a little. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Saints, that is New Testament revelation, coinciding with the Old Testament revelation, a God of vengeance who will set things aright, a coming of the Lord, a day of reckoning, innocent blood that cries out for the righteous balances to be adjusted as God brings his invocation of vengeance against the ungodly. So in the presence of his enemies, thus almost declares a vengeance invocation. Number two, he brings his case against the wicked. Verse four, Well, verse 3b, how long shall the wicked exalt? The case against the wicked is, number one, they are self-exalting. Think of our day and how many exalt themselves. Think of the, you know, just Joe Blow individual and how social media platforms are designed to exalt oneself, to publish oneself, to proclaim your glories to the earth, as it were. That's one example on an individual level. But on another another example, think of those who are in prominent positions of influence in culture, government, society, celebrity, and so forth. Do we not see the wicked exalting themselves? We do. This case against the wicked is every bit as relevant today as it was then. The wicked exalt themselves. Verse 4, they pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. Again, self-exaltation. Verse 5, they crush your people, O Lord. And afflict your heritage. This case against the wicked, not only do they exalt themselves, but they persecute the righteous. Number three, verse six. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. Third, in the case against the wicked, they exploit, they assault the vulnerable. Verse seven. And they say, The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Fourth, in the case against the wicked, presumption. Acting as if there is no higher law or authority, no God that sees what you are doing. Let me skip ahead to verse 20 and add one more in the case against the wicked. This would be desecration of the law. Verse 20, can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? What does it mean to frame injustice by statute? Well, it's a vain attempt by those who make the rules to say that things that are wicked are actually righteous by passing them into law, framing injustice by statute. If the Supreme Court rules on something, does that make it right? Ultimately speaking, not unless they are God. Are those nine individuals in black robes who sit in the high place in our land, ruling on our behalf, do they answer to yet a higher authority still? Yes, they do. They may be called the Supreme Court, but in the grand scheme of things, that's a misnomer. They answer to the judge of all the earth. And if they do not rule rightly, if the legislature that passes laws in our land does not rule rightly, what do they do? They vainly try to change right and wrong by passing into law that which God has said is wicked, unrighteous, unlawful. They frame injustice by statute. This is the case against the wicked. And I'm sure as you're listening, you can think of many examples in our day where this applies. Thus, we live in days of trouble. Do we not by this measure in the presence of our enemies, the psalmist, and we ought to echo his declaration. There is a case to be made against the wicked. It is wrong to exalt oneself. Humble yourself before the Lord. This is one way to fight this self-exalting impulse in our culture. To walk by the Spirit, not fulfill the lust of the flesh, as we've been studying also in Galatians 5. Take on that cloak of meekness and humility. Recognize how great of a sinner you were, and how and and you are, if it was not for Christ changing you, giving new desires and new affections, and then live in light of this truth, so that you do not project yourself as special and as something to be lauded, exalted, and worshipped, and followed, and 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 to be. Uh, whatever, at the expense of the glory of God. Persecution of the righteous. This is again reprised in 21a. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Who bands together against the life of the righteous? The wicked do. This is an echo of verse five. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. The persecution of the righteous is a mark of the wicked. A case against the wicked recognizes that they have fallen short of God's demands and they are turning their animosity, their uh, mockery, their marginalization, even their violence against the righteous. And in so doing, they judge themselves as falling short and they are in violation of the law of the judge of all the earth. Well, we might live in a day of persecution. It might increase in days moving forward. How do we live in the days of trouble with any consolation, as we'll explore a little bit more uh, in the next point or two? Well, we recognize that those who persecute the Lord will not get away with it. We recognize this in Revelation 6:10 through 11. We just read how those who stand before the throne lament the blood of the innocent. Jesus Christ himself said, as he proclaimed to the Pharisees, the blood of all the innocent prophets, all the way from righteous Abel, all the way through the last prophet killed in the old order, they all cry out for justice. Will those cries for justice, the blood of Abel screaming from the ground, be satisfied? Will there be that day of reckoning? Yes. The blood of Abel builds a case against the wicked, and so do and so does the blood of all the righteous. It goes on, exploitation of the vulnerable. One of my favorite verses is in Psalm forty eight. It's, a similar, it's similar in theme and it's kind of on the other side of the coin. This is a psalm that worships the beauty and the glory of the kingdom of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, and the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. In verse 11, there's a passage and it goes like this. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. What is significant about this poetic phrase? Well, daughters can represent the most vulnerable, those who should be protected, children, women, in in a society. These are the ones who ought to be Uh, uh, provided for and defended by the able-bodied warriors, the men, the fathers, and the families, and the homes, and outward through the obligation responsibilities of society. In a society that's broken down, daughters are not safe. You can't trust them in the city of man. Daughters are vulnerable. I have a couple daughters, and this really brings this point home. And as a father who cares for my little ones, my daughters, especially as I think about them, in this particular case, do we not long every responsible parent for an era, for, an, for a kingdom where our daughters can rejoice, where they can dance in the streets without fear of their lives or their innocence? Why? Because of your judgments. What do we learn from this? When the judgments of the Lord govern a society, the daughters, the most vulnerable, can rejoice. However, if the world goes the way of its sin nature, if society reorganizes itself according to different values, if biblical and Christian ideals and values and virtues are further and further away from the consciousness and the social order, from the organization of things, what happens? The most vulnerable among us are the hardest hit. The widow is threatened. The sojourner is threatened. The fatherless is uh, threatened by murder. In verse 21, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Do you need 60 million examples of this, saints, in order to make the point in our day? If you need them, you can read of them in the statistical charts of abortion alone. Yes, in Roe v. Wade, in some form, the Supreme Court of our land sought to frame injustice by statute And after that law was passed under the sanction of aberrant, perverted law, so the cause or so the violence against the innocent uh, was waged in our land to the tune of tens of millions. The innocent are condemned to death. This is a case against the wicked. This speaks to us that we live in days of trouble. This ought to make us cry out, How long, O Lord? and to proclaim the righteous judgments judgments of our Lord, and to declare to a society that your most vulnerable will not be protected until the judgments of the Lord are stood upon, celebrated, championed, and feared, and proclaimed, and implemented among us. Presumption. The wicked go about and do all this stuff and they're like, God can't see. There's no such thing. It's a materialistic universe. They live as if there is no one to answer to for their actions, verse seven. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Rulers often entertain the delusion of ultimate sovereignty because of the position they occupy in this fleeting life. Think of Belshazzar, the king who was desecrating the temple Instruments, the temple vessels. And all of a sudden he thought, I have nothing to fear. I'm the most powerful king on all the earth. And this stupid God of the Israelites is ridiculous and retarded. I'm just going to drink out of his vessels and proclaim my authority, my glory over him. What happened? In an hour, his kingdom fell. Why? Because there was an invocation of vengeance. A hand came down and wrote on the wall. It's one of my favorite moments in history. You are weighed in the balances, O king, by who? The judge of all the earth. And you are found wanting, by what measure? The righteous judgments of the king of kings. And today, your life will be required of you. So it was. Nebuchadnezzar, same book, Daniel, chapter 7-ish or something. So he he thinks that no one is higher than him because he, likewise, has this impressive kingdom. We are a superpower in America. We could easily feel this way, ah. You know, the leader of the free world, who does he have to fear? If we rule presumptuously, if we don't remember that there's a God to answer over us, we will go the way of every other empire, including Nebuchadnezzar, who in a moment found himself like a cow in the field, eating grass, humiliated by the Lord on that day of vengeance invocation, if you will. This is a case against the wicked. Self-exaltation, persecution, exploiting the vulnerable, presumption, And as we've already covered, desecration of the law. Now they are confronted by the words of the psalmist as well. Notice verses 8 through 10. Our author continues to sing. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? I have kind of another heading for you. Only fools do not fear the following. Only fools do not fear, number one, the Creator. Only fools do not fear the judge of all the earth, and only fools do not fear the omniscient, the one who can see everything. Listen, understand, O dullest of the peoples, fools, when will you be wise? In verse nine, creator. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? You have ears, you have eyes. This speaks of a creator who has the power to make you, form you, fashion you by the word of his power, from the dust of the earth in the first place, and you think he can't hear what you are saying? You think he cannot see what you're doing? Only a fool does not fear the creator. Secondly, verse 9, 10. He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? Here again we say only a fool does not fear the judge of all the earth. Notice how it just goes without saying that the Lord disciplines the nations. Some might doubt that today, but for the psalmist, it is obvious and undeniable that the Lord disciplines the nations. And you might look for proof of that. Just go to your history book. I don't care who wrote it. Is the, you know, the Empire of France still a real factor these days? What about the Spanish Empire? What about the old Roman Empire? What, what about the Holy Roman Empire? What about the Emperor of Persia? Is he really a guy to be feared? What about Babylon? What about the Medes? What about the Greeks? No, wouldn't fear any of these. Why? Because they've all been destroyed. And this is proof of God's discipline. He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? If the Lord demonstrated his power and authority over all those other empires who destroy him, does he not reserve the same right to do the same over you? Empire in America is the message for us today. He who disciplines the nations, he does rebuke. And finally, he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. Only a fool denies or does not fear the omniscient, the one who sees all. We cannot know anything unless God reveals his world and his character to us. He does this, this is an epistemological question, it's a fancy word that speaks to a philosophical question. How do we know what we know? It's kind of a difficult question. People have tied themselves into knots all through the history of philosophy and trying to figure out the source, authority, and meaning of knowledge. The answer is right here. He who teaches man knowledge. In other words, those who rightly understand that the source, authority, and meaning of knowledge, anything that's legitimately true, has its foundation in the Lord, he who is no fool will recognize that that individual, the Lord himself, knows everything. He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. Only a fool denies Only a fool does not fear the creator, the judge, and the omniscient one. In the presence of his enemies, the psalmist declares a vengeance invocation, a case against the wicked. He confronts the wicked. Final point this morning, he declares consolation for the righteous, comfort, peace, a source of hope. I'm sure I'm like you, and I read the news. If I tune into these online news sources, man, it seems like we're surrounded by days of trouble. Seems like there is no end to reasons for anxiety and fear. It seems like probable imminent collapse on any level of social organization is just right around the corner if the trajectory of the downward spiral of our society continues. But the scriptures do not leave us hanging. They do not leave us without hope. Neither does the author of Psalm 94. Where can the consolation of the righteous be found? Verses 12 and following speak to this. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. The discipline and law of the Lord are a consolation for the righteous. He is blessed who honors, values, learns, and sees his life by the power of the inner working of the Spirit increasingly conformed to the law of God. This was a passion, if you will, obsession with the authors of the Psalms. Think of Psalm 119. How do you preach all the way through that Psalm? Well, We'll see when we get there without recognizing some affection, some affinity with the psalmist that the law of the Lord is perfect, just, righteous, holy, beautiful upon it and in it and through it, that is the righteousness of the Lord revealed through his statutes, his precepts, his laws, his order, his principles, all through scripture, without realizing that those things are the consolation that they are a refuge, that they are a firm foundation, that they are an anchor point, that they are a reference point for us, then most of, or much of the Old Testament scripture especially will be lost on us as to its value and purpose. However, these things are a consolation for us. Notice verse 13, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. So you recognize that the law of the Lord will hold individual or nation acts accountable, and the Lord is digging a pit until the invocation of his vengeance will allow that individual to be judged. This week, a pretty incredible example of this came across the Newswire. I had first heard about Jeffrey Epstein, this uh, alleged pedophile and so forth, two years ago or so, and I remember reading about, you know, he represents a $77 million mansion, a block from Central Park. He's one of these socialites and elites in our culture today, And then you read about these allegations where if they were true, represent such a horrific uh, exploitation of the vulnerable. I won't go into detail because of how disgusting it truly is. And then you see this case brought and it seems like he could afford the best defense in the world and everything else and there's a great miscarriage of justice and there's something, as you're reading a story like this, you cry out how long, O Lord, will the rich and deviant get away with it By hiring expensive lawyers, how many have lamented lamented this very thing? However, what we should have recognized from Psalm 94 is all the while, a pit is being dug for the wicked. And reports were this week that that individual is found dead in his prison cell. He probably felt like he ruled the world 10 years ago. Probably felt like he had the rich and famous and the powerful wrapped around his finger just a decade ago. But today, as far as the reports say, he's dead. And now he must stand before the righteous judge of all the earth. And if he did not confess faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior, what kind of vengeance invocation can he expect? Hell, eternally. That's the truth. That's the pit that's dug for the wicked, which they will eventually fall into. In the meantime, recognize that while nations rise and fall, God's word and law remain the same. And they are the standard by which we will be judged. How will you be judged? We'll close with an answer to that question. The only way that we can be judged righteous in the light of a holy God. Nevertheless, consolation for the righteous, discipline and law, divine self-defense, 14 and 16. This goes to our enemies being God's enemies. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? The consolation here is that the Lord will defend His own. When, um, let's say, you get a knock at the night and there's a butt of a gun, you know, smashing through your door, you gather your defenses. You tell your family to go in this room, and as a father, you're going to defend your own. This is a self-defense scenario. Think of that analogy and apply it to the Lord. When His righteous are persecuted. Do you not think that God will rally in his perfect time his defenses in self-defense to protect his own? The consolation comes from knowing that you are in God's family. If you are in God's family, he will defend you. His defense comes in different ways. This isn't to say he won't allow his children to suffer, and some are not even called, or in some are called indeed to die for the faith. But ultimate refuge, security, and assurance comes in eternal life. That is where hope lies. And the last enemy, death, will be defeated. That's the greatest and ultimate enemy. Christ defeated death on Calvary. And these enemies are being placed under his footstool, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And so, consolation for the righteous is knowing that we are his, that we have been grafted in, That we trust Jesus as our Messiah. We call God our Father because he has transformed us. We are born again. We have received a new family identity. We are Christians now. Consolation for the righteous is knowing that God will defend us because he defends those he's in covenant with. He defends himself as it were. Thirdly, his steadfast love, a related idea. Verse 18, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Steadfast love unfailing loyalty and commitment with the power to satisfy every promise he's extended to his own. This is steadfast love. This is a chesed love of the Lord that we see all through the Old Testament scriptures. A constant point of consolation in days of trouble. We have that steadfast love in Christ Jesus. If he has died for you, then you will be rescued from the days of trouble the worst days of trouble of all your own sin, but even days of persecution on this earth. Finally, under consolation of the righteous, our author returns to a judgment benediction in verses 22 and 23, last two verses of our psalm. Listen, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God, will wipe them out. Where is consolation, again, for the righteous to be found? Recognizing the authority, universal uh, relevance, rule of his law, recognizing that he defends his own, his steadfast love never fails. And then our author closes with a judgment benediction. He opened with a vengeance invocation. Now we have, if you will, a vengeance benediction. But notice there's two categories here. As far as he is concerned, The same Lord who judges his enemies has become his stronghold and his refuge. However, those who are outside the covenant will be wiped out for their wickedness. The Lord will wipe them out. This makes all the difference in the world. When the Lord returns, when the day of his judgment arrives, when his vengeance is invoked, is your consolation with the psalmist? He is your stronghold. He is your refuge so that the day of his vengeance actually means salvation for you, that you won't be caught up in the wake of his judgments because you are caught flat-footed without atonement in your sin? This is the question that we want to answer as we close. The question of how can I be sure? How can I be consoled in the days of trouble? How can I be positive that the Lord won't wipe me out for my iniquity and my wickedness? How can I know that the God of vengeance, the holy God of righteousness, has extended to me his steadfast love? How can I know that he has become my stronghold and my refuge? How can any sinner rest assured he will not be the object of God's wrath? This wrath that is proclaimed against, pro- proclaimed against the wicked in verse 23. The answer is, when he becomes the object of Yahweh God's covenant love, the Lord. When he recognizes Jesus bore the vengeance he deserved and purchased his salvation on that cruel cross. This is the answer. You see, there was a day of vengeance. There was an invocation of vengeance on the day that Jesus died. When he cried, Father, release me, take this cup. If it be thy will, may this cup pass from me. Jesus in that moment in Gethsemane recognized that there was a day of vengeance, an invocation of vengeance that was right around the corner, that he would suffer on that cruel tree and under this treatment, the wrath of a holy God and uh, and all of the vengeance that your sin deserved in mind if you're in him this day fell upon his bruised and broken, bleeding body, hands, feet, And his forehead pierced with that crown of thorns. And as he did so, he he became the ultimate consolation for the righteous. Only through Jesus Christ can the Lord, who would otherwise avenge the wickedness of your own heart, become your stronghold and your refuge. Because Jesus Christ suffered the day of vengeance for you. Do you know him today? if you don't know him as your Savior and Lord, you will be introduced to him in due course as the judge of all the earth and woe to all on that day. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message and the clarity and the truth of your holy word. We thank you that there is consolation for the righteous in and through Jesus Christ who suffered the day of vengeance for us. Lord, I pray that you would equip your saints in this room, those who have placed their faith Confess their sin, place faith in Christ, that you would equip them to proclaim with boldness the message, even in days of trouble, that there is a holy God that all must answer to one day. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace and return us to the source of consolation, even in days of darkness. And for the lost in the hearing of this word today, I pray that you would move them in fear and reverence for a holy God to tremble in light of falling short of your law, that they might repent of their sin and trust that Jesus took the day of vengeance on their behalf. And as they do so, Lord, I pray that your church would welcome them in this place or somewhere where the word of God is proclaimed, that we might all, Lord, grow as the kingdom of God advances on this earth and proclaim to the lost that there is a reckoning but you can survive it in Christ alone. Thank you for these words of truth, hope, consolation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.